Welcome to the Imperial Many Minds podcast from Imperial College Business School. I'm your host, Dr. Omar Merlo, Associate Dean of External Relations at the Business School. On this podcast, we share conversations between our expert faculty and global alumni network in business. From the role compassion can play in the business world, to the economics and finance of climate change, from digital transformation to sustainable development and social responsibility, our diverse minds are tackling the questions that matter. At Imperial College Business School, our unique strength is the ability to gather a diverse range of experts. This gives us a broader, deeper, and more cohesive view of the challenges society demands business take a lead on and enables us to design more expansive and groundbreaking solutions. On the Imperial Many Minds podcast, the world's top academics and industry experts will help you find the ideas, skills, and confidence to make better decisions, whether that's in relation to your business or your career. Are you ready to join today's meeting of minds? The topic of our first episode is the perfect example of how collaboration will help us tackle a global challenge like the climate crisis. Forecasting the future climate is critical to assessing risks for society and the economy alike, but it is no easy task. How do we calculate the cost of climate change? And more importantly, how do we prevent and mitigate those costs? Bringing professionals from a variety of disciplines together is crucial to translate scientific data into concrete public policy. I am excited to introduce you to our guests, Dr. Enrico Biffis and alumnus Ravi Vargas. Enrico Biffis is an Associate Professor of Actuarial Finance at Imperial College Business School and Co-Director of the Sustainable Tech Lab at Imperial X. His areas of expertise are risk analysis and asset liability management. Dr. Biffis has collaborated extensively with leading financial institutions, regulators, governmental and non-governmental organizations, including the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Our guest alumnus, Ravi Varghese, is the Head of Sustainable Investing at Epoch Investment Partners. He graduated in 2018 from a Master's Degree in Climate Change Management and Finance. He leads sustainable investing initiatives and explores how to best implement them across asset classes with environmental, social and corporate governance data. During the episode, Enrico and Ravi examined the ability of climate modelling to provide useful information for investors and insurance providers. Having adequate data about the climate is essential to allocate financial resources where they are needed. The guests also highlight Southeast Asia as an interesting case study for applying climate models, given the extreme weather events the region experiences. The conversation was inspired by the article written by Dr. Biffis entitled What Global Climate Change Models Are Missing? If you would like to read it, we will link it in the description of the episode. I started out by asking, how important is it to develop more sophisticated climate prediction models and why? So uh, climate models are extremely important to help us understand what might happen going forward. At the same time, as we all know, it's very hard to project climate several decades into the future. This is why uh, here at Imperial College and at the business school, uh, we are investing uh, a considerable amount of time and resources and uh, research efforts uh, in trying to see how to improve uh, our modeling tools and uh, with a specific focus on uh, downscaling them. So what we have, we have a number of uh, very, very powerful tools developed by colleagues uh, in natural sciences 
we would like essentially to make them useful for uh, market participants, asset owners out there by downscaling their outputs to spatial resolution of interest to, uh, to market participants. So we have uh, quite a few projects uh, focused exactly uh, on these sort of um, objectives. Uh, the results so far have been particularly encouraging. We are working uh, with a number of stakeholders uh, globally, and uh, we have also a, a very exciting uh, series of projects uh, specifically focused on Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia uh, presents, uh, um, from a rich point of view, a number of uh, very interesting challenges. And just to name, well, we saw the news, we see essentially the um, weather patterns can be extremely adverse out there. And uh, we have also some phenomena that are very, very hard to model, uh, notoriously hard to model, such as typhoon risk. And um, uh, we we also have a variety of asset classes that can be impacted by uh, um, evolving uh, climate, uh, and, uh, and hence we find it extremely interesting to try to apply our modeling tools uh, in that context. I, th- I think the, the importance of these climate models cannot be overestimated, actually. So clearly from a public policy standpoint, they are tremendously important in terms of understanding both the possible loss of human life, but also costs uh, as we see some of these extreme weather events. Uh, one thing I've been thinking about a lot, and I'd be curious to hear uh, some of Enrico's thoughts maybe, is, you know, first there's there's just the amount of infrastructure that still has yet to be built in a lot of these developing economies. Um, so I think these, these statistics are probably a little bit out of date, but um, I think from the Asian Development Bank saying that something like you know, 1.5 to $1.7 trillion needs to be spent in developing Asia each year on infrastructure. Um, and probably in, in Southeast Asia, that's something like 200 to $300 billion a year. So ensuring that that, that infrastructure is built in a climate-resilient fashion um, is a huge use for these these climate models, but of course, in the, the private markets as as well, um, and that you know is, is where I spend most of my time, or, or thinking about you know private investments, thinking about you know how to site uh, an auto plant, for example, or a data center. I think increasingly private actors are going to have to think very carefully about how they want to make these uh, long term capital decisions and. I think the climate models are, are are still catching up in some ways, and so I think you're going to see a lot more interest from uh, from private actors in having the best information they can to make these capital decisions. Yeah, absolutely, Ravi uh, is absolutely spot on. Uh, this is actually one of the reasons why we decided to focus so much on spatial resolution of improving our, our understanding of climate change as spatial resolutions of interest because what we find is that we are facing a massive risk of capital misallocation going forward. So the sort of projects Ravi is mentioning are very large projects that, you know, they're going to be implemented over several years. So if we want to get it right, we need to understand properly how, where these projects are going to need, be needed the most, essentially. So this is about uh, making capital flow in the right places and for the right reasons. And so uh, what our research shows is actually that our naive use of global climate models can be very misleading. Uh, it's extremely important, essentially, to recognize the uh, local features of uh, different exposures to make sure that adaptation uh, strategies are implemented successfully. Uh, and I think this speaks very nicely to, to what Ravi just mentioned. 
Global models tend to predict very different results. Are you confident that it's possible to replace them with versions that are reliable, accurate, and consistent? We don't, we don't use the models directly, but what we do is use third-party data providers who will you know, obviously use those, those models as they start to think about physical climate risk or perhaps transition risk and how that affects the companies that we're invested in. So they do, they do certainly feature. I think at this point, we have the opinion that a lot of the uh, models we've seen from these third-party data providers are uh, useful, but maybe not always uh, directly actionable in terms of an, an investment standpoint. And I think one of the, the issues there is the lack of granularity in the climate models and translating that into then saying whether an investment decision <laughs> uh, raises the risk of stranded asset risk, for example, in the future. We're not quite there yet, I think, in terms of, of how we view that link. But I think that would be one of the the highest uses of some of the work that you know, people like Enrico are doing in, in terms of trying to make these models more specific. Yeah, I'm uh, extremely uh, hopeful that the market will uh, appreciate more and more climate models that are uh, uh, not necessarily more sophisticated, but more fit for purpose. Uh, we've witnessed a tremendous development uh, in the marketplace over the last few years. And some of the discussions we are having today are actually quite remarkable. Uh, only a few years ago, for example, uh, they would have been considered fairly niche, right? Now, uh, essentially, everyone is talking about this. A very important thing that Ravi mentioned is that we don't need yet another black box. Uh, so this issue of transparency, cross-validation, and greater scrutiny is crucial. And these sort of challenges require, uh, you know, a multidisciplinary approach to, to get it right. And so we need essentially uh, the, the willingness to, uh, to collaborate across disciplines and to have market participants engaging with the data provider and the scientists to make sure we develop tools that are actually delivering uh, what they're supposed to deliver. Just to, uh, to, to tack on to that, I think what Enrico said about the multidisciplinary nature of these, these problems and coming back to a lot of the work that the, the business school is, is doing is incredibly important. And so there's one question about getting the technical outputs of, of the models correct, but increasingly what investors like myself are looking at is then trying to put a dollar figure on the possible economic risk or, or, or damage. Um, that in itself is a, a separate challenge and equally challenging. Um, and so it really requires an integration, I think, of, uh, you know, different, different skills and uh, different um, ways of thinking to try and answer those questions. What Ravi uh, is alluding to is, is a well-known disconnect between um, or segmentation or fragmentation of uh, the contributions coming from different disciplines. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> some of these gaps uh, become particularly material uh, when it comes to financial applications. You have a number of beautiful results uh, that uh, are very difficult, for example, to, to implement, not necessarily uh, because they pose particularly complicated technical challenges, but because it's very hard, essentially, to understand the economic value of those results. So I think the, the business school and uh, the talented uh, students and researchers uh, working here can actually uh, make a massive contribution toward uh, bridging that gap and helping uh, acting essentially as translator of a very sophisticated modeling tools 
uh, for investors and asset owners uh, uh, and ultimately uh, also um, uh, policymakers. Given uh, the, the long-term nature of the challenges we are facing and the, uh, the sheer amount of resources that will be needed uh, 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 to address the, uh, the challenges. I like that word that Enrico just used about being a, a translator because um, I do think that is something that is that is very important. So what what some of these uh, data providers struggle with, I think, is providing a something that is robust um, and sophisticated, but then also facing um, the temptation or maybe even the the demand from uh, uh, investors like myself to try and simplify that just to, to, you know, a single number, for example. Um, so I think, you know, yes, being, being translators and understanding how to communicate these complicated concepts is incredibly important. And I was thinking about how you can try to think about communicating average risk versus extreme risks. Um, this is actually, you know, an incredibly difficult concept. I think that uh, we struggle with just in, in regular public policy. So, um, you know, the, the IPCC has been struggling with this for years in terms of how to communicate some of their work, um, to policymakers or the public in, in general. And yeah, really thinking about these, these extreme, uh, or, or tail risk events is, is really, really challenging. And so I like some of the, the work that, that Enrico has been doing and showing, um, really how how much greater the extreme risks are versus the average risk. I think that's really, really important, especially in a place like Southeast Asia, where these, these can have real effects. Enrico, can you briefly explain how you developed your model? The approach we try to follow in um, uh, refining our understanding of uh, climate models uh, is trying to uh, use machine learning approaches, trying to make sense of a sheer volume of data to find uh, uh, to allow essentially this information to reveal some uh, very interesting patterns of features that uh, could be helpful to stakeholders that need that uh, degree of granularity uh, when looking at the uh, impact of different climate variables. They could be, for example, um, you know, uh, focusing on uh, maximum daily temperature or more concerned about uh, uh, extreme rainfall events uh, or typhoon risk or vice versa, they might be concerned with drought. And uh, depending on the particular value chain uh, you consider, clearly you you have uh, different preferences, uh, different constraints. Uh, and uh, we found essentially that machine learning approaches can uh, afford a degree of uh, customization, which is remarkable. Uh, and at the same time, uh, provides us uh, with uh, some uh, uh, unsupervised or uh, approaches or approaches with limited supervision of the data that uh, can complement very nicely some more traditional statistical approaches, uh, allowing us essentially to, to have a much better uh, understanding uh, of the risks we are facing. So this is the, the philosophy that, that drives uh, our research. We have a number of uh, uh, collaborators uh, uh, that are contributing from several different parts of Imperial College computer science, uh, mathematics, uh, engineering. Uh, and, uh, um, and again, it's nice to see the business school essentially bringing everyone together uh, around a holistic framework exactly to operate uh, the um, role of translator and try uh, to, ma to make sure the uh, results uh, are understood or looked at uh, through the lens uh, of uh, economic impact. So our ultimate goal is always the same. We want to ensure 
uh, better gauging climatic risks uh, is ultimately used to uh, support and implement an efficient allocation of capital. Ravi, how are current climate models impacting the investment and insurance industries? I think the current state of play is that from the uh, in the investment industry, there are third-party data providers who are attempting to help investors uh, understand the physical risk that is associated with, uh, I'll speak for myself as a, as a public uh, equities investor, um, the risk associated with uh, companies that they're, they're uh, invested in, in, in the public markets. I think that's currently fairly challenging in some ways for a couple of reasons. I think you, you have to understand these climate models, first of all, and, and feel confident in their, their outputs. Those are often kind of a, a black box uh, approach. Um, understandably, many, many of these uh, commercial entities want to keep their, uh, some of their, their data pr- uh, proprietary. Um, so that can be challenging for investors. And then the second stage of that is translating that into uh, understanding how much of a risk that might be for individual companies. So, you know, you might compare the the risk to the you know current enterprise value of the company, for example. But again, you know, those those require a, a lot of assumptions. Again, speaking to the, to the role of kind of you know average versus extreme, those have different outcomes. And I think people are probably still struggling somewhat to try to figure out uh, how to, how to think about those things, um, at least from a public market standpoint. That's probably the the main way they're they're being used in in my work right now. But the flip side of that is is the insurance uh, industry. So I think Enrico is probably a better place to speak about some of that work. So climate models are uh, are being taken seriously by the investment in insurance industry. Uh, usually, you know, the perspective is that, uh, you know, it's fairly defensive. There are a number of risks out there, emerging risks. Uh, they pose a challenge. It's important for investors, for example, to rebalance their portfolio so as to mitigate some of those risks. So insurers uh, should uh, uh, do accurate pricing so as to make sure they don't experience uh, unforeseen losses. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think there is a much more um, uh, important role for investors and uh, for financial institutions and insurers uh, uh, to play. Uh, and this is the role of uh, actually uh, helping uh, the broader public uh, to appreciate the economic cost uh, of climate change. So they can actually act as, uh, again, as powerful translators uh, by assisting uh, the public in uh, what I would call a journey uh, in which uh, there is price discovery, there is cost discovery by right? climate change. So to me, what's most relevant is that the, these industries can uh, play a major role uh, by doing risk-based pricing on certain products in terms of conveying the importance of certain issues to the broader public. Think, for example, of insurance rates that are properly climate-sensitive. Think of mortgage lenders that start charging uh, different uh, borrowing rates depending on uh, the particular location or exposure of real estate to emerging risks. I think that's the area uh, uh, that's most promising to us and this is why most of the tools we are trying to develop are very much focused on enabling stakeholders to do proper climate-sensitive asset pricing. If I can uh, just maybe go on a, on a slight tangent that I think is related to something that Enrico said, and I was thinking about this over the weekend, 
as I was thinking about a potential energy crisis that, that Europe might be facing over the winter. Some of the problem is that from a public policy perspective, no one was really incentivized to think about these long-term risks and kind of these uh, tail risks, essentially. The unfortunate outcome of that from someone who cares about uh, you know, global, global emissions is probably an increase in, uh, in carbon emissions as, as people are forced to use uh, sources like, like coal and, and natural gas. But the point I was trying to make is that, as Enrico says, I think we're in danger of making the same mistake, except here with, with a separate issue on climate change, where, uh, you know, we're not looking out long term enough and, you know, we'll find ourselves in, in a position where we as a, as a society, but including financial market participants have not done a good enough job, I think, of communicating these long term risks and trying to articulate, um, some of these negative scenarios. And so we could find ourselves in a, in a similar situation. Um, albeit from a from a climate change standpoint, um, thirty years from now, for example. No, this is great. If I could add something, so what Avi uh, mentions is, uh, I find it extremely important because um, there are a number of enthusiastic um, researchers and students uh, looking at these topics. But ultimately, to get it right, uh, we should uh, take into account uh, implementation and feasibility constraints. In order to, to successfully transition to a low-carbon economy, there are some uh, constraints that need to be uh, satisfied and, uh, and considered. Uh, and these constraints, uh, of course, uh, pertain also to uh, geopolitical considerations, right? So, um, uh, so I'm a strong believer that using uh, the language of risk and these um, proper risk modeling tools, actually, is one of the uh, most effective ways to, to bring down barriers, right? And, and, and actually allow different people uh, from different backgrounds, uh, uh, living in different contexts, essentially to look at problems from a constructive perspective and trying to join forces to um, deliver successful solutions. Um, so in that sense, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ravi is clearly making reference to the um, energy crisis. I mean, that's uh, uh, clearly, uh, um, you know, sort of a reality check uh, that hopefully uh, is going to make us all uh, uh, more aware of uh, the sort of implementation challenges uh, required and, uh, and hopefully is going to induce uh, governments uh, and uh, stakeholders, market participants and people like myself, researchers, essentially to, to look at these problems from, um, uh, from a uh, slightly more pragmatic point of view. Why are current forecasts provided for the marketplace by private risk so opaque? The opacity in some of these risk models uh, from, from private market entities is by design in, in some ways. Um, you know, there is obviously a commercial viability to these models and it involves work to, to translate these uh, into, into things that can be used by the investment community, for example. So quite understandably, um, the companies who do that would like to be to be compensated fairly for that. That creates a, ch a challenge for for the users of these models because it's very difficult to understand the assumptions and uh, when they go wrong or even when they go right to understand uh, what the drivers of that have been. So that's something that I think we're going to have to to try and a hurdle we're going to try to have to to overcome somehow. And there could be you know a variety of solutions. So some are 
again, uh, having some of these, these private actors produce these models. Some would probably argue that, uh, you know, these are, these are public goods. Um, you know, these, this information is, is a public good and should, uh, is best produced by a government, for example. Um, I think there's a whole, range of, of intermediate models so you know some kinds of public private partnerships in in uh, producing some of this work and i actually think some of the the work enrico has been doing with the the singapore green finance center is, is an example of how industry can can help to, to fund some of this work that is ultimately produced um for more more public goods so i think uh, you know, uh, we're, we're in the rel relatively early stages of trying to see how we build out some of these tools and models, but equally as importantly, how, how they're funded and, and how, who gets to use them. Do you foresee any challenges or pushback when it comes to rolling out science-based models more widely? Yeah, science-based models, are, I think, are essential uh, to tackle uh, uh, climate challenges uh, effectively. At the same time, uh, uh, you know, uh, clearly uh, there's going to be uh, a number of hurdles to clear, uh, a number of pushbacks. Uh, uh, as we become more and more aware of, the, uh, of what we are facing in the long run, uh, it will become also very clear that hard, some hard choices will be required and unfortunately some uh, sectors uh, will be impacted uh, uh, pretty hard uh, with uh, you know uh, uh, cascading effects on uh, labor market uh, and the quality uh, or life of uh, uh, segments of the population so you know this is uh, to be expected but at the same time um, it represents an opportunity so I think uh, uh, all too often these sort of solutions are uh, are perceived uh, as uh, the introduction of some constraints or uh, curtailing some uh, the development in certain industries or sectors, but actually uh, they could represent an incredible opportunity. Opportunity that, however, need to be um, needs to be uh, supported. Uh, by policy tools that uh, allow, for example, workers to uh, to be retrained, to uh, to find their their place, and, and uh, a role to play in a low carbon economy. Uh, you know, if we don't uh, adopt an approach that's uh, that's truly holistic and, uh, and inclusive, uh, then of course uh, um, it, it will become very hard to uh, uh, to implement some of the. Um, hard choices that um, science-based models uh, suggest uh, um, uh, will be optimal to um, to make in the future. I, I don't think there's any alternative, actually, to these science-based models. So in that sense, um, uh, no, I, I don't think there will be too much pushback there. One thing I, I've been thinking about, and which I've alluded to already, is, is again, this um, getting the calibration right between the sophistication or or maybe the, the complexity of the output and the natural desire to try and simplify how that's communicated so again you know enrico knows this better than than anybody but uh you know in, in the uh, financial world for example especially prior to the global financial crisis you know there was there was a big uh, move to try and simplify financial risk to uh you know often a single number value at risk you know and so i think that is it something that, that we're going to see as we use some of these um, these science-based climate models? Um, again, trying to convey the complexity, but also be you know simple enough to be used by uh, governments or 
um, maybe financial market participants who aren't, you know, necessarily in the weeds on, on, on climate models. I think we're going to see that, that back and forth, um, play out. And so I don't think that's a, a pushback per se, but I think it's, it will be one of the challenges we face as, as these models become more, um, integral to the economy and financial markets generally. How can this research be used to collaborate more widely with other imperial faculties? Well, I'll speak as uh, someone who, who chose to, to come to Imperial College and the business school uh, simply because it, it had such um, a multidisciplinary approach. Um, so I did a, uh, a liberal arts degree uh, at a, an American university and then a, a master's in finance prior to um, uh, prior to the Imperial degree. Um, and I was just really excited to meet both uh, students who had a different background, but also get to work with a whole range of, of professors uh, in the course who had uh, expertise in, in different fields. And so, um, you know, I, I think that, again, as, as, as we both alluded to, you know, this is just such a multidisciplinary problem. And uh, a place like Imperial is, is just really well set up to, to tackle some of those, those problems across disciplines. Yeah, from uh, maybe I add something from a point of view of um, a researcher. Uh, so for us, these topics, um, these, these, these are amazing opportunities to collaborate with very talented uh, researchers uh, um, at Imperial College London, but also all over the world with different institutions. Uh, so the work, for example, we've been discussing with Ravi is with a colleague um, at Princeton University. We have a number of collaborations with different universities um, all over the world. What I would like to emphasize uh, is that, um, you know, this is not um, just an option, right? A nice optionality to have. Uh, this is actually something that's needed to be able uh, to deliver concrete solutions to these problems. So one of the most interesting projects we are working on right now, for example, is focused on carbon-based assets, such as forests, for example. Um, and we're trying to design forestry-linked securities that could help, for example, asset managers, for example, to gain some negative exposure to carbon emissions. And that's a very, very, very tricky problem to, to address uh, if you don't team up with scientists that are actually in the business of understanding forests, how they grow uh, in different parts of the world and with, with different tree species and how they, they capture carbon in different ways and how they're exposed to different types of hazards, uh, wildfire risk, for example, pest and disease uh, to address these problems and, uh, and try to tackle them effectively, you truly need essentially the contribution of uh, um, uh, leading experts in several different fields. And that's the only way in which uh, um, a valuable solution can be properly delivered to the marketplace. Uh, and in that sense, uh, uh, you know, uh, as Ravi mentioned, we are very lucky here at Imperial College to, 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 to be at the business school, uh, which is right uh, at the center uh, of a number of different areas uh, where uh, uh, state-of-the-art um, uh, research in different fields is being uh, pushed every day uh, and shared widely uh, across the college, uh, both with faculty and students. Is there anything you think that we haven't covered? No, Ravi, it's so great to see you, uh, you know, so successful out there. And perhaps something I would like to mention during our conversation today uh, is that it's, uh, it's not clearly uh, extremely gratifying to see uh, students like you out there uh, being very successful. But I think it should be emphasized that it's very important to have people like you 
playing the role you're playing to make sure the capital is managed properly and uh, can flow uh, uh, to relevant undertakings. Uh, we, we do need more people like you. This is going to become increasingly important going forward. Uh, and, uh, and I think, um, uh, yourself, uh, and, uh, your fellow students, uh, should be, should feel very proud, uh, of the role, uh, um, uh, you guys are playing, uh, in, in the financial system. Uh, it's going to be extremely important going forward to make sure the world, uh, is going to be a better place uh, for future generations. Thank you. Well, that's, that, that, that's very kind. And I mean, I, I think of my role as really, you know, fitting in an, an ecosystem of, of, uh, you know, other roles. So when I think about how we work, um, you know, obviously we use uh, work that is produced in, uh, you know, educational institutions, um, or nonprofits, think tanks, for example. Um, sometimes that work, uh, comes through commercial third, um, uh, third party data providers. Um, but we work with other investors as well. So, you know, there are organizations like Climate Action 100 plus that are thinking about how to, um, take all this information and, uh, help again using that word, translate it to actionable items for, for investors. Um, but I do think it's, it's really important. I think, you know, particularly at a time when, um, uh, ESG investing, for example, is, is, um, you know, enduring a little bit of criticism, particularly in the U.S. Um, I think it's really Im- important to, to try and, um, uh, remind everyone at our firm, but also just, just generally that, you know, these are really meant to try and improve, um, investing results. So thinking about, you know, the, the return and risk of these investments, um, these are meant to be completely aligned with our, our fiduciary goals to our, our clients. And so I think sometimes that fact is, is lost. It's, it's seen as, you know, either a, a political or, or social um, enterprise. And, and that's that's not really the goal. It's, it's to improve our uh, performance a, as investors and really complement some of the traditional fundamental work that that's being done elsewhere at the firm. So I really appreciate w- w- what you've just said. And, and like I said, it's, you know, it's a, it's a whole ecosystem. And I think um, ensuring that that work is, is grounded in rigorous scientific work that's, that's being done by, by people like you is, is, is hugely important. You're, you're being very modest, uh, Ravi. It felt better coming from you than, than from me. <laughs> but I appreciate that. <laughs> And Enrico, I know we've been talking about this uh, particular article that you wrote on uh, on, on downscaling these these climate models. Um, but I also know from from being your student that you have a, a pretty wide uh, range of of uh, interests um, and have a pretty broad portfolio of uh, of research. So I would be curious to hear uh, what else you're working on right now and and how this climate work fits into that portfolio. Yeah, Ravi, you're absolutely right. Uh, we, um, I'm involved in a number of different projects. Uh, you know, they are largely focused on the same issues, but um, with slightly different perspectives of, uh, or areas um, of application. Uh, for example, a project which is immediately related to, uh, uh, to the one we discussed, uh, um, is not that much focused on downscaling, uh, uh, but looking at different climate models, there's a variety of them and trying to identify in a fairly unsupervised way with the help of machine learning, which ones may qualify as being a little bit too hot, too pessimistic, 
which one might be a little bit too cool, <laughs> too optimistic, and which ones might be actually uh, a little bit more balanced in uh, our understanding of what might happen going forward. Another area in which I'm um, uh, uh, excitedly involved uh, is financial innovation. So I love essentially to see how the marketplace can offer opportunities to uh, to, to transfer or mitigate or, uh, or ensure some of these uh, risks. A project that keeps me very excited is, for example, to see how to design uh, forestry linked securities that might um, assist, uh, for example, investment managers such as yourself or, or broadly speaking, uh, corporates, for example, in holding uh, negative carbon assets. I'm also being involved uh, uh, quite extensively with, uh, with insurers, global reinsurers, for example, in terms of designing uh, uh, new de-risking solutions for a variety of value chains, um, agriculture being the obvious example, we did quite a bit of work, for example, in sub-Saharan Africa. And there, again, the, the idea is to leverage um, on, uh, uh, on technology, you know, remote sensing, satellite data, satellite monitoring uh, in order to, uh, to build products uh, um, or insurance products that can be uh, customized uh, to address the needs uh, of uh, uh, different farmers on the ground. Again, granularity is very important, robustness of the modeling tools, but at the same time, um, especially when uh, uh, you work in developing countries, clearly uh, uh, there is this idea of uh, uh, trying uh, to promote financial inclusion, so bringing on board people that traditionally uh, find it very hard to benefit from the financial system because of a you know a variety, you know, low resources, lack of credit history, these sort of things. And uh, and again, the idea is that uh, you know proper financial innovation can uh, really uh, make the market market uh, helpful uh, uh, for a number of stakeholders. It could be really, um, uh, you know, in our experience, uh, 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 very challenging, you know, value chains that are faced with sizable uh, climate challenges can actually uh, uh, be assisted and supported uh, effectively. I'm, I am actually very excited about that, although when you're talking about some of the uh, insurance uh, problems for farmers, I was getting uh, some uh, flashbacks to some of the uh, problem set questions that, that you said, <laughs> which I, uh, I, I struggled over in, in the course. But uh, but no, on, on the topic of, of forestry-linked securities, I mean, I think there might actually be um, a direct tie into some of the, the work you're doing on, on the climate models, because as you, you, you know already, uh, the carbon storage characteristics of these forests is vastly different, you know, even within relatively small, uh, small areas. So I think, uh, some of the work you're doing on, on making these, these models more granular actually plays pretty well in, into that. So uh, super excited to, to see what, uh, what this works brings. Thank you, Enrico, for, for the conversation, but, but more importantly, I think, uh, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed my time um, at the business school. Really enjoyed doing this with you today, and hopefully we'll get the chance to do it again. Well, great to see you, Ravi, um, and welcome home. <laughs> it's always nice to see our students uh, um, uh, coming back to Imperial uh, College Business School. Um, look very much forward to engaging uh, uh, with you uh, as part of uh, several initiatives uh, uh, we are working on, on the topics we discussed together. That concludes this Imperial Many Minds conversation. If you enjoyed it and want to explore this topic further, there's an article written by Dr. Enrico Biffis that expands on the points covered during the discussion. You will find the link to the article in the description of the episode. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Biffis and Business School's alumnus, Rabbi Vargas, for sharing their knowledge and experiences. That's it for today. Thank you for joining us in this episode. Make sure to subscribe and share. 
or search Imperial Many Minds to find out more. In the next episode, Dr. He Jiang Jiang and alumnus Shirag Amin will be talking about how diversity in the boardroom can be derailed when a company underperforms and why diversity at the top of the business world is essential. The Imperial Many Minds podcast series is brought to you by Imperial College Business School. While others speculate on the future, Imperial College Business School's diverse minds are designing and building it. Imperial means intelligent business. This podcast was produced by Prong Productions. 